and welcome to the Security Ledger Podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this episode of the podcast, number 218. When you're looking at sensors you're deploying in a field, for example, you know, the protocols that, that's coming back from them, you, you might not think, well, this is just a sensor. It's, you know, it's reading rain levels and all the other sunlight, whatever. But that's information that's valuable. You know, some somebody, if, if they had access to that data stream, they might be able to tell what your crop yields are going to be before you do, or at least before the market does. If you're talking about like heavy machinery and other things, then of course there's safety impacts. And, you know, there's a, definitely an overlap between security and safety there. Attacks on critical infrastructure are a thing. In just the past four months, the United States has contended with at least two of them. First, when the Colonial Pipeline that delivers fuel from the Gulf Coast to the northeast of the United States was shut down following a ransomware attack. And then, just weeks later, when a major meat processor, JBS, also found its operations hobbled by ransomware. In both cases, the companies quickly paid out large multi-million dollar ransoms to the attackers rather than face the prospect of rebuilding their IT environments and IT operations from scratch. The repercussions of those attacks on the public were easy to spot. Video of long gas lines in the southeast United States appeared within days of the Colonial Pipeline attack. And in the case of JBS, the ransomware attack on one of the U.S.'s major meat processors caused disruptions up and down the beef supply chain, including the closure of slaughterhouses and disruptions in supply. But what if there were no ransom to be paid and those attacks had lasted longer than just days? What if the target of the attacks was not just a single meat processor or pipeline owner, but farms and big agricultural operations throughout North America that grow wheat, soybeans, corn, and other staples of the global food supply chain? The consequences of an attack like that could be much more dire than expensive hamburger or a supermarket shopping bag filled with petrol. A coordinated cyber attack on U.S. agriculture could, in very short order, lead to widespread food shortages and hunger in the United States and abroad. And as any historian will tell you, when food gets scarce, things get ugly. But how likely is such an attack? And how vulnerable is the U.S. agriculture sector to disruptive attacks like those on the Colonial Pipeline or JBS? More vulnerable than you might think, according to our guest this week, Rob Wood, who's the vice president of the hardware embedded systems practice at the firm NCC Group. Rob warns that the agriculture sector, like manufacturing and healthcare, is increasingly reliant on vulnerable software and hardware. The consequences of that dependence, he said, are only dimly understood. In this conversation, Rob and I dig deep on the cyber risk to agriculture and on the bigger questions about how best to manage the increased risk that accompanies digital transformations in critical sectors like agriculture. Uh, Rob Wood, I uh, work at NCC Group. Uh, I'm the VP of the Hardware Embedded Systems Practice here. So NCC Group is a, a global security consulting company. Um, we're based out of Manchester in the UK. Basically, what we what we do is provide security consulting services. Uh, my team specifically in the Hardware Embedded Systems Practice focuses on exclusively product security. We have a long history of uh, embedded systems development ourselves. And so now most of us have moved into the security domain uh, where you know we can help our clients you know develop more secure products. Um, we're very, you know, cognizant of the the challenges of product development. You know, mm. the practical realities of like manufacturing and and all of the things that have to happen there across industry verticals. You know, we have huge 
huge uh, clients in the, like the oil and gas and energy sectors. We do lots of manufacturing. We have a mm -hmm. huge transport division. My team supports them quite heavily. Mm -hmm. uh, and they do everything from like, you know, e individual ECUs within an automobile all the way up to entire port authorities um, and, you know, everything in between. A lot of uh, global logistics and supply chain, you know, uh, trucking, refrigerated containers, you, know, you, you name it. We're, we're kind of spread across all industry verticals. When you can really get down to it, though, the technology is the same. I mean, we're talking about computers with software that, that has vulnerabilities, and, and it really doesn't really ma matter, you know, what the industry vertical is. The technology underneath is pretty much the same. It's usually the impact, the threat models, you know, those are the th sorts of things that we talk about with clients that, that differ from one industry to another. So when we're talking about, like, connected vehicles, automobiles or what have you, or equipment, um, and we're going to be talking about kind of the agriculture sector a little bit later, but what does like that architecture, both from a hardware and software standpoint, look like? How, what, what is, what is involved in connecting and making a smart, you know, vehicle broadly defined? You know, well, we used to have just purely mechanical systems and, and now yeah. to get the most efficiency out of them, they've started adding some computer control to, to, you know, allow the automobile to run more efficiently, to set the timing of your engine, you know, all these sorts of things. Uh, and that was all fine uh, until much more recently when, you know, we started talking about like infotainment systems and, and other connected systems. And that's really yeah. where it gets interesting because now suddenly you have things like, like the CAN bus, which was never designed to be a secure protocol. Uh, and it's in every vehicle. And now suddenly you've got things on that that are connected to the internet because, you know, the yeah. kids in the backseat want to watch Netflix. Uh, and, and, and these kind of app platforms, these kind of mobile smartphone type app platforms that are running. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so connecting, you know, all of these external systems to it. So, you know, you have external, uh, you know, LTE radios, you, you might have a Bluetooth connection to your phone. You, a lot of expensive vehicles now have Wi-Fi, of course. Um, and all of this is just added attack surface. So now you have all of these external interfaces that, you know, an attacker can reach and, and that could potentially bridge onto to the CAN bus, which is you know, where all your safety critical systems are, you know, deploying the airbags, turning on the brakes, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, in the automobile, you know, they've made leaps and bounds uh, of trying to segregate the networks. Um, so, you know, your engine control network is separate from the network that your infotainment systems attached to and whatnot. Um, but I mean, that's not always the case. Sometimes, you know, the way that the, the OEM manufactured the car and designed it isn't necessarily the way it's deployed. You know, there's a lot of aftermarket um, products being put in cars that can kind of change that topology and, and, and bridge networks and things. So it's not always a, a clean picture. Yeah, we saw that obviously with the, you know, Charlie Miller, Chris Valasek, um, yep. Jeep Cherokee hack, uh, whatever it was six years ago now, it's been a long time. At what stage typically are companies engaging with NCC? Is it is it generally at the visioning and design, you know, stage, or is it much later in the sort of, well, we're getting ready to go to market and we want kind of somebody to look at it? Yeah, yeah it's split. So, I mean, I would say about 30% of what my team does is working with uh, customers who are, you know, buying and deploying technology. So in the automotive industry, it's really complex complex, for example, um, you have to go six suppliers deep before you find anybody who has a compiler. Everyone just buys something from somebody else. That's just the way the ecosystem is set up. And so you end up working with a lot of uh, technology that you don't have, like the source code and the schematics and all of that information. Uh, on the other side, the, the other 70% of what we do uh, is a lot of white box assessment, working directly with the OEMs who are building the technology. Um, and here, I would say it's split about 50-50 about whether we're getting involved at the end of the line. Maybe they've got a customer who wanted to see a security test report. And so we're just looking at a product that's uh, you know feature complete or very nearly so. 
Um, and in that case, you know, we can do a white box assessment looking at, you know, did they build this correctly and that sort of thing. Um, but it's always more cost effective to engage earlier. Uh, so it, rather than doing a big assessment at the end, we can do much smaller engagements all the way through, right from their early requirements all the way through to end of life. Uh, and, and that kind of helps them not only develop the product better, but also the processes around how they're developing it. Um, you know, we can make a lot of observations there and, and suggestions, uh, which which can help uh, make make the what they're actually building a lot more secure in the end. Um, at, with, of course, a much smaller budget. And and you know, it, it's I, I realize it's like infinitely complicated and probably depends on the you know application. But in general, I mean, what are your you know concerns and recommendations um, to device makers uh, around? security, both communication security, data security, you know, device integrity, um, you know, if, if you're lucky enough to engage with them early on in the kind of, you know, design um, and, and, and specification stage. So, I mean, there's an awful lot of things that I would consider table stakes security requirements, uh, especially for products being designed and built in, in 2021. Th- things that we've been doing in other areas for, for 15 years or more. Uh, and a lot of that, sadly, is lacking in in so many industries. You know, they'll they'll pick processors based purely on performance requirements and based on price. Uh, and and by the time security gets wind of what's happening, it, I mean it's too late. They'll already have prototypes built. They'll be committed to that particular platform, for example. Uh, and it might be lacking things like uh, you you might be missing things like secure boot. You know, basic firmware integrity protections. Uh, you might be missing. Uh, memory management unit, which is the basis of an awful lot of exploit mitigations, which is something that we kind of expect to see in computing. So platforms. it's really, it's unit cost and kind of bill of materials. It's driving decision-making versus, you know. Yeah. And I mean, there's always going to be conflicting requirements, but if, if you engage early enough uh, with the security teams at these companies, you can say like, you know, this is what we're building. These are the features it's going to have. And then security can come along and say, okay, that's great. So you're going to have a camera. You're going to have to have all these privacy requirements bolted on. Uh, and, and if you tell the engineers, you know, these are the requirements, they're going to go build a good product according to those requirements. But if you just don't tell them about certain requirements until later, it's a, it's a game of catch up. And then you're going to get a lot of pushback on your security, uh, which is not the right approach. Uh, so I always like to try and engage early. So we're talking to you um, specifically around the issue of, of um, you know, kind of the agriculture uh, sector you know, precision agriculture is obviously a, a thing now. We have very sophisticated um, uh, farm equipment and farm machinery um, that is, uh, I know you're in Canada, we're in the North America, but it's working on both sides of the border. Um, have you, I don't know if in your work you've looked at, at um, agricultural equipment um, or if NCC has, but maybe just give a sense of, you know, what types of advancements we've seen in the agriculture space compared with like, let's say automobiles, my guess is, or my understanding is pretty, pretty similar types of developments, but obviously these agricultural equipments are, are mechanical things they are doing jobs or they're, they're kind of robots with wheels. Um, and, uh, and, and technology and software have really kind of revolutionized that. Yeah, and we see the same sorts of things elsewhere, uh, like in the forestry industry and oil and gas energy sectors. Um, a lot of uh, high volume manufacturing, they're very similar. Like they're they're primarily chasing yields. They want to improve uh, the performance of whatever it is, their machinery, their factory, their fields. Um, and so, you know, they're looking at you know technology as a way to help do that, and it's, it's fantastic. 
Um, but their primary motivation is is those you know financial goals. It's it's not to do with security and security is really uh, a, li- a liability in those a lot of cases. You know, a- any penny they spend on security is is money they're not spending on other things. And so, um, you know, it's, it's like like insurance. By the time you need it, it's too late, right? So, what we're seeing a lot of of products in this space is that. They, they they didn't start with this, the requirements. Uh, you know, there was no requirements engineering that took into account security, uh, and and so you know they're like like a lot of other industries, they're a little bit behind the eight ball. Um, you know, they're starting on their back foot and making sure that they they have all of the security up front. Um, so you know, when you're looking at sensors, you're deploying in a field, for example. You know, the protocols that that's coming back from them. You you might not think, well, this is just a sensor. It's you know it's reading rain levels and all the other sunlight, whatever. Um, but but that's information that's valuable. You know, some somebody if, if they had access to that data stream, they might be able to tell what your crop yields are going to be before you do, or at least before the market does. They might be able to do uh, stock trading based on that, things like that. I mean, the threat models we're talking about are a little bit different. Um, if you're talking about like heavy machinery and other things, then of course there's safety impacts, and you know there's a, definitely an overlap between security and safety there, uh, and that's fairly well understood. Uh, the automotive industry has been a kind of a forerunner there. Um, you know, computers are no longer just under your desk; they're traveling down the highway. At, you know, with your kids in the back seat, and so safety is you know yeah. front center right there. Each month, the Security Ledger podcast informs and entertains an audience of thousands of technology and information security professionals. If that sounds like an audience your company is trying to reach, consider sponsoring one of our podcasts. We offer per-episode sponsorships of our weekly podcast, which features news, analysis, and discussion of the most important security topics of the day. You can also commission a custom podcast that highlights your executives, researchers, and subject matter experts. To learn more, point your web browser to securityledger.com slash sponsor. One of the things that I've noticed, and I've been writing about IoT security and Internet Things security for a long time, is, and and I think this is true across many industries, is that you know the kind of feature capabilities, the things you can do with technology and connectivity, those conversations tend to run well ahead of the risk conversations. Like, yes, we can do this with technology, but that also introduces new risks, and what are those, and how do we kind of account for those? And like, it seems to me that. You know, I mean, we've got Tesla cars like driving under, you know, semis and, you know, uh, a lot of technology out there that seems like very capable, but not particularly well vetted from a risk and safety standpoint. <laughs> and my sense is in agriculture, it's it's that that has happened as well, that we've got a lot of connectivity in a very short period of time, but that the risk and cyber security conversation is a little bit behind that feature development. Yeah, and I don't think that's not true for any technology. I mean, we had cars on the road, you know, 100 years ago, and, you know, there were no safety standards back then. Seatbelts only no. became mandatory, yeah. you know, in my lifetime. Um, yeah. So, and then they only started using them even more recently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so, yeah, I think in some states, they don't even still require them, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think that'll change anytime soon. I mean, it's always tempting to blame the technology, but I mean, people are going to be people no matter what you do. They're going to take risks. They're going to try new things. Um, you know, it's only until t- you reach critical uh, penetration in the market where where it becomes a big enough problem that I think you know you need to have some sort of oversight across across an industry like that, um, and and that's kind of where we are now. You know, the, the internet and the IoT is such a big thing now that you know people are starting to look at it pretty seriously from a regulatory perspective. You know, uh, the Mirai botnet uh, a couple of years ago was a pretty massive attack against large pieces of internet infrastructure uh, to the point that you know certain 
jurisdictions have passed legislation mandating minimum requirements uh, for security. Um, yeah, so unique passwords and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean yeah. it is very minimal, but it's it's uh, it's enough to stop something you know like you know naive like the Mirai botnet for now. Uh, anyway. Yeah, yeah, for now. Um, what um, as a as a hardware engineer, you know, when we look at questions like physical safety and so on. Um, you know what are the what are the processes that a that a malicious actor would use to move from um, you know logical logical access to a to a deployed piece of machinery um, to being able to control it you know physically and again I think we we saw an example of this obviously a few years ago with the Jeep Cherokee hack but um, I mean generally how does what is the chain of of um, uh, connections that they get you from. Oh. It really depends on, on who the attacker is and what their goal is. What, what yeah. we've largely yeah. been seeing is opportunistic uh, things like mm-hmm. ransomware, where mm-hmm. they're just sweeping the entire internet looking for vulnerable systems. And then once they're in a network, they kind of spider out from there and see what they get. They're not really focusing on any kind of the embedded systems and you know those sorts of process controls, targeted attacks like that. Um, we have seen, unfortunately, a number of clients who needed help with cleaning up uh, you know ransomware events in that is kind of bridged over from their IT networks into their operational technology networks, you know, in their factory floors. We've seen some like, uh, you know, meat packing plants and vaccine uh, packing companies, things like that. Uh, we work with some companies doing bottling equipment and other kind of food supply chain, uh, which which could be quite interesting. Um, but, but almost in all cases that I'm aware of, at least, it hasn't really been targeted. We have seen some uh, threat intelligence where... Uh, that certain sectors, certain market sectors are being targeted by ransomware actors, um, specifically like heavy trucking. Uh, we've seen um, the healthcare networks uh, since, especially since COVID started uh, and education sectors as well, uh, where they're specifically targeting them with ransomware. Uh, the thinking, I guess, being that they're more likely to pay up because they can't afford the downtime. Yeah, um, very time sensitive, right? Exactly. But but yeah. as far as targeted attacks go, like going, th- there's a lot of technology between you know, that, that internet connection, getting through the IT network into their, their operational technology network, and then from there into the machine networks. Um, and so there's exploit developers tend to specialize. Uh, and so mm-hmm. someone who's really good at Windows exploits might not be very good at, uh, say, Linux exploits. If you know mm-hmm. x86, you might not know ARM very well. When mm-hmm. you start getting into embedded systems, the number of technologies can kind of expand rapidly. You're, you're no mm-hmm. longer talking about one or two different operating systems. There's dozens. Um, you know, hardware architectures are obviously very specialized and custom. They might be built for purpose. Uh, and so trying to come up with exploits that kind of work across the board can be very expensive and time consuming. And so we don't really see the kind of low level organized crime, um, you know, opportunistic attackers that we see with ransomware in that space, unless it's, uh, you know, very, very focused. So something like Stuxnet, for example, that that has a very specific goal. They had very specific funding, um, you know, and of course they had the expertise needed to do that. Those sorts of things tend not to be public. Um, and so if they are happening, we don't see them, at least not very often. I don't work very closely with our incident response team, so they might have a different answer to that question than I do. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we approach something... Um, but you do have an incident response team, so... Oh, absolutely. We have a whole, <laughs> a whole group of people at NCC Group who specialize in that sort of thing, and they can parachute in on a Sunday afternoon and help clean up whatever mess there is. But um, like I said, we don't work with them too much. Um, we, we tend to, like I said, focus uh, on the defensive side, looking at uh, OEMs who are building products. 
Uh, and so when we do look at a product, we are kind of thinking like an attacker. And so, you know, we'll try and look at the product, map out the attack surface. We obviously can't read every line of code. All of our engagements tend to be time bounded. Uh, so if we have two, three, five weeks, whatever it is to look at something, you know, we're not going to read every line of code. It just doesn't make sense. Um, so what we do is we'll, we'll map out the attack surface. We'll figure out all the different interfaces, how an attacker would go in this. Attackers generally are lazy. They're going to go after the easiest things first. And so we'll do the same, try and cover all of the attack surfaces and then go into deeper and deeper depth uh, until we run out of time or budget. And that's our general process for everything. Um, but when we're looking at embedded systems, I mean, you, you have might have some network interfaces, you got USB, you might have some radios, um, LTE or LoRaWAN or whatever it is. Um, and so we'll kind of look at all those and the communications that go over those interfaces to see, you know, how that data is being handled. Um, you know, is there any, we see a lot of code written in C. And so, you know, memory corruption issues tend to be very, very common. Um, unfortunately, a lot of issues we find are things that can be automated uh, and we just don't see automation being used very effectively. Things like static analysis and fuzzing. Um, there's not a lot of sexy answers here. It's, it's just a lot of basic security hygiene and, and so many industries are just kind of behind. Yeah. And and uh, as one security researcher pointed out to me, you know, one of the challenges just in terms of, um, you know, doing the yeoman's work of, you know, research on these embedded systems is often, you know, some of the some of the machinery, the devices themselves are both expensive and hard to get a hold of as opposed to, a, you know, Windows laptop, right, or a, or a MacBook or an iPhone, which you can obtain for, you know, a couple hundred bucks. Um, and so and so that just really limits the number of eyeballs who are really looking at these platforms closely. Yeah, there, I mean, there's two things we're talking about with exploit development. There's there's vulnerability discovery, and then there's exploit development. So when, when you're trying to discover vulnerabilities, we can actually discover quite a lot of vulnerabilities very, very quickly. When you actually try and develop exploits for them, that can be very time consuming. There's always unknowns. Um, you know, when we're talking about like discovery, we're talking about like days or weeks. When we're talking about, you know, exploit development, proof of concepts, we're talking about weeks or months. Uh, and, and of course, it's context dependent and there's overlap. Um, but really, it's not the exploit development that we're worried about. And certainly, expensive machinery will lower the number of uh, attackers who are able to get hold of the equipment and develop these exploits. Um, but really, what we're talking about is the actual execution of the exploit. So once the exploit is developed, what is the cost to the attacker to actually run that exploit? If that's zero, then you have a problem. And that's what we, we try and um, dissuade a lot of our, our clients from doing. So things like shared secrets on devices, uh, you know, if you've got, uh, if you're lacking exploit mitigations, you know, and a lot of embedded platforms still are lacking. Um, these are the sorts of things that make exploits, you know, they might be expensive to, to develop the exploit, but they're very, very cheap to execute the exploit. And so, you know, once someone develops it and they post it online, anybody can run it. And then R rinse and repeat, right. Exactly. And that's what you want to avoid for sure. Right. Um, and of course, you know, uh, while the number of people with the means to develop the exploits is small, it's not zero. And um, and you have nation states and other you know, well-funded adversaries who, who may always be interested in that. So you can never assume that, you know, it's, it, the bar is so high that nobody can clear it. Um, what, so what can be done on the OEM side, uh, on the uh, manufacturer side to address these risks? Um, you know, you the picture you paint is one I've heard from others as well, which is, um, you know, the, there's there's it's uneven. It's uh, the, the attention to security, both in design and deployment, is is just uneven across across all these industries, particularly around embedded devices. So, you know, particularly when we're talking about critical industries, uh, agriculture among them, 
Um, what what are some things that might be done to raise the bar uh, of security for the device makers and the customers? A lot of it comes down to education. I mean, I've worked with some really brilliant developers. Uh, embedded systems engineers tend to be very focused on the details of the technology. And if you can explain to them the problem, they're going to come up with a really great solution that that fits their technology that, you know, they they have they know what tools are in their toolbox and they know how to wield them effectively. And so sometimes it's just a matter of pointing out the problem. And, you know, this this is how an attacker is going to see your system. What are you going to do about it? And they'll just go off and fix it in some brilliant manner. Most of the time when we have problems, it's because they just weren't aware of it. You know, especially when we're talking about safety critical systems, they're looking at things from like a statistical uh, failure perspective. You know, machines break down, they wear out over time. How are we going to mitigate that in software? They're not looking at it from an adversarial perspective when there's there's actually an attacker out there who wants to see your system fail and they're going to actively try and make it do so. Uh, and, and it's a completely different mindset. Um, so once they understand that, uh, often the solution just comes into place uh, without having to work too hard. And this kind of goes back to my earlier comments about getting it right at the requirement stage, making sure that your security requirements are well documented up front and that the engineers can see that they'll go and build the right system. If you don't tell them and they build the wrong system, then trying to fix it after the facts, it's just too expensive. Um, so when we're talking with a lot of clients, you know, we'll look at their, you know, their current flagship product or whatever, but a lot of times we'll find issues that, you know, they have to go back to the design board to fix. And so the best we can do is kind of roll that into the requirements for the next generation. Almost every company we work with is working on some next generation product. Um, and so, you know, intercepting that is, is usually uh, pretty critical to make sure that, you know, they don't end up in the same state they're at now. We have seen some clients who kind of start out from zero and they're like, well, we've never made a connected product before. You know, how do we get there and make it secure at the same time on the first generation? And that was, those were really fun projects because, you know, you have a blank slate. Um, but unfortunately, I mean, well, well that seems probably like it's probably more the exception in the rule that you hear that. though. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's what I was about to say that there's so many clients that have just like a long history of products out in the market, in the field, they might have some security incidents already, uh, some known vulnerabilities, they might have some exploits being developed for their products. Uh, they're always going to be playing catch up on those. But it's a if you kind of fix the next generation, then at least the existing legacy problem is, is a constrained problem. It's going to be always decreasing. You won't be adding new devices of those old models over time. Uh, and so it'll, it'll be a diminishing problem over time. Um, when we're talking about things like farm equipment, though, they, they stay in the field for, you know, 20, 30, 50 years. And so yeah. it, it's kind of and cost, yeah. you know, a million dollars or more per per device. Yeah. Yeah. And when we're looking at systems like that, it's less about fixing the system itself. Uh, you know, the company who originally built it may no longer be around. You might not be able to patch them, you know, fix fix the firmware that's on them, but you could kind of bandaid over it. You could put systems around it, access controls, you know, firewalls and sandboxing and stuff to try and, you know, mitigate, uh, you know, the attack surface that way. Uh, and so there's things you can do in, in that respect. Um, but yeah. Do you think there's an awareness in that sector? I mean, I, agriculture, food and agriculture are a critical infrastructure sector, but honestly to look at, and I know I'm in the US, you're in Canada, but, you know, look at the Department of Homeland Security or CISA, you know, the focus is more on food production and food food supply chain. It isn't as much on, on um, you know, hardware and software in the fields, but it seems like it should be given that, you know, especially, you know, obviously there's a lot of legacy equipment out there that is not connected, but late model, pretty much anything made in the last 10 or 15 years almost certainly is. Um, and that, you know, given the time sensitive nature of agriculture, you know, you've got a day or two to either plant or harvest or whatever, um, that would be a highly, an industry that is highly susceptible to software-based disruptions. Yeah. And that's only increasing. I mean, I, I have some 
some connections personally with the, the forestry industry. Um, and when they cut down a tree, for example, they're measuring the diameter of the tree as it's being cut. That data automatically goes to market. They, they sell that tree to the highest bidder automatically, even before it hits the ground. Uh, and they know exactly which lumber yard to, you know, to load it onto the right truck. So it goes there. Like this is all happening in real time. Um, dis- disruption is definitely possible. And, and, you know, they're, they're well aware of the security implications of what they're doing uh, in, in some of these industries. Uh, and so they're, you know, they're doing what they can. But they're, again, their motivation is, you know, improving yields, improving profits. Their security is kind of a, you know, a thing that they have to do to get there. And so they're not necessarily going to be, you know, putting it front and foremost. They're the kind of... When we're talking about like the big technology companies, you know, the Googles and the Microsofts and the Amazons, you know, they have large, robust security teams. You know, Google had like what, at the time I was working there years ago, like 1500 people in, in their security organizations. And so they, yeah. they know what they're doing. It's um, almost certainly bigger than that now. <laughs> yeah, probably. But when you're talking of companies who are you know building this kind of farming equipment, they, they might have one person who's, whose side job is security or you know, maybe two people. They might, they might deal with some external security consultant like ourselves uh, to kind of help them along the path. But, but generally, they don't have that kind of lar- large, robust apparatus to make sure that they're building everything correctly. Um, it's just not their, their primary function as a, as a company. So, um, yeah, and anytime you have kind of a non-technology company doing technology, uh, you, you have those risks. Uh, yeah. I mean, one thing you hear a lot, and and for me, it's kind of a flashback to the you know late '90s, early 2000s. You know, when I was starting out as a reporter, which is you you just hear a lot of the sort of a reprise of what you heard Microsoft saying in the late '90s. You know, about you know sort of security through obscurity. You know, like we shouldn't you know we shouldn't have vulnerability researchers kind of poking around our stuff. You know, it's we're we keep it secure, but you know you you know, you have to trust us to keep it secure and we can't throw the doors open to anybody. And you, you get a lot of those kind of security through obscurity arguments and, and, and the counter argument, which is no, you know, you're, you're, you know, even if, even if you bar white hat security researchers from looking at your stuff, there are always black hats and nation states who aren't going to care what, what the rules are. Um, and so, you know, transparency is, is, is paramount. Um, yeah. So whenever we're talking about security, it's, it's impossible to evaluate the security of a product yourself. If, I, if I'm going to go buy a car, how do I know that that car is secure? And, and the, the way I do that is by reputation. Well, the car I, I look, I look at what external signals this company is sending. Do they have a good security program? Do they have like uh, an email address on their website that I can email vulnerabilities to? Do, do they publish bulletins to say, hey, we fixed all these security issues this month. You know, go download your patches. You know, these are the sorts of signals that I look for to say, yes, this company knows what they're doing from a security perspective. And when, when I see things like, you know, security researcher uh, reported a vulnerability and they got hit with a lawsuit. I mean, that's a very 90s uh, response to, to security. Someone's trying to help you and you sued them. That, that's just irresponsible. Now, you, now you're telling people that you don't want to hear about it. You, you want to leave your products vulnerable out in the field. Uh, and that's, that's just not tenable. And we still see a lot of that, especially in industries that are just now starting to make connected products. Yeah. Um, they just haven't learned. It's like lessons. a maturity thing, right? It's like they just, it's like, this is a new conversation for them. And so they, they kind of re, I mean, often, and I've, I've gotten this as a reporter too, often they think you're trying to extort them. Like, what do you, you know, what do you want money from us? And it's like, no, I'm just, you know, <laughs> just trying to tell you something, you know? Um, but um, there's a bit of a disconnect between yeah. some researchers who kind of grew up on, Hey, bug bounties exist. I can report this vulnerability and get money. And so I found a, I found a bug in some system and I go talk to the company and say, Hey, can I get some money for this? It does sound like extortion. Yeah. 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 Yeah
<laughs> uh, got to understand the context. You got to understand the context. So is there, final question, I mean, is there a role for um, regulation around some of these critical infrastructure sectors, some of these critical industries to, you know, resolve these issues or or address the the, the cyber risks that you're talking about, obviously without mandating particular technologies or particular, you know, approaches or practices, which I think we could all agree is probably not a great thing I, to do. I think so, but it has to be done carefully. What we've seen in the consumer electronics space, so I mentioned the Mirai botnet earlier, uh, and there's been some legislative attempts there to try and bring in some minimum security bar. What they didn't want to do is say, you must meet all of these requirements in order to sell your products, because that would eliminate huge parts of the market. It makes, yeah, it might lock in certain technologies, it become very uh, contentious. What they did in that case is they just set some very, very minimal requirements. You know, these are a couple of things that are really terrible. You shouldn't do. You know, default passwords. You know, you must have an ability for people to report bugs. You must provide patches, things like that. Um, and so, in in those cases, uh, a lot of those are kind of new technologies, though. And so, consumer electronics are are front and foremost. They're almost disposable. Like people don't kind of keep their TVs for more than a few years and then they upgrade you know, the advancements are kind of natural in that case. You can move the advancements into the market much more quickly. Because exactly. And they can kind of create bigger. like a rolling window where the, 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 that minimum bar can increase over time. Um, but what, we, what we've seen in other industries in the past, especially like government procurement where uh, things like common criteria uh, and other, and other um, requ- security requirements, specifications, they're very onerous. Uh, it's very expensive to meet these. And so it, it becomes... Uh, it's not very cost effective for a lot of upstarts. When we're talking about things like precision agriculture, there's a lot of innovation happening. A lot of small companies, they don't have huge pockets. And so they don't necessarily, they're not able to kind of meet all of these security bars right away. Um, you know, they might have uh, a few products on the market that don't meet these bars today, but they're working on the next generation. Um, and so what we want to do is encourage the right behaviors here, but we don't want to punish people for innovating. Uh, and so I think that th- things like um, th- these kind of minimum bar legislations kind of work in that favor. I'm a little skeptical about putting too much regulation in place. Um, Really, the main thing I'd like to see more of is education, especially in these uh, innovative sectors where they're coming up with some cool uses of of technology that we hadn't considered. I mean, like drones are fun for like, you know, vacation photos, but but using them to dust your fields uh, is a huge time saver. And and, you you don't have to drive over your your corn with your big tractor wheels and such. Um, So so it's definitely neat Uh, and and. I guess what I want to see is these people understanding the risks they're taking on, um, you know, b- both the, the people deploying the technology and those developing it uh, so that we can make sure that, you know, they're in a good state. Rob Wood of uh, NCC Group, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on Security Ledger Podcast. Yeah, uh, no problem. Thanks for having me. Rob Wood is the vice president of hardware embedded systems practice at NCC Group. He joined me on the podcast this week to talk about the cyber risk to agriculture. Mm-hmm.